I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The the podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yes. I'm so glad it's raining here because hopefully the dipshits with the commercial grade fireworks who, who were blowing up my neighborhood last Ugh. night. On the 4th of July, will not be doing it. They more. were doing it with mine, too. And then someone on Twitter, who I'm not sure where they were from, I couldn't tell from the, you know, the profile, but tweeted something like, so for those of you that didn't have, I can't remember the exact wording, but they didn't have, you know, regular the municipal fireworks. Right. Did you have a bunch of local people setting them off, like in my neighborhood, and like a bunch of people all over the country said, yes, yes, well, yes. Well, see, the thing is, here... We do anyway. Like, it wasn't any different Ugh. from other years. It's just, it, there are a bunch of people. I live in a village, and there are a bunch of people. And they're friggin' commercial grade things. You know, the state law is very loose allowing mm. them. But one thing is you can't set them off near a house. Like, you have to be 50 yards or something from a house. But the houses <laughs> in my neighborhood aren't that far apart. I could see them. But anyway, I saw a story, I think it was in the Washington Post today, where some um, dipshit killed himself by taking a commercial grade one and they're, they're like in these mortar um, yes. cylinders and he held it over his head and uh. When, uh, when the thing exploded you know it went down exploded down the kickback and killed him jeez oh, what so, a dumbass i know i mean that's sad but it is know. it's sad but it didn't have to happen Right. But yeah, and so I live in the, even though it's a small city, I live in the city. Right, and Portland does have a law. And they were going literally for four hours straight. Just boom, 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 boom. And and I don't know what Portland's fireworks law is. They're not supposed to be setting them off. Right, but the cops probably have better things to do. And like my town, since we don't have police, we don't have a town ordinance because the state police and the sheriff's department, which patrol our town, can't enforce town ordinances. So who's going to enforce it? You know, so there's no point in even having one, even if they were going to do something. A bunch of rich summer people anyway. Yeah, that's what they are. Anyway, you have an update. I have an update. I do have an update. Do you want me to go first? Why don't you go first, yeah. My update, I believe it's episode seven. I know episode seven was the main women and the men who killed them or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't that the men who, women who love men who kill them? I don't know. And episode, I believe the, I did an extended update on the same case in episode 71, I think. And it might have done one on the 72 too. And you did one earlier than the that too because this is 78 and i know you did one remember with the staircase and stuff that was in, i think that was 71 oh, okay it's just that we've been we, so we, long between episodes yes. i guess um i looked to see but okay. i'm not sure i hope i'm, I'm sorry people it, anyway we to, they they'll figure it out we'll be doing i think we should be doing better notes and stuff i don't know well so anyways we by we you mean me um, no, I'll yeah, help. Yeah, yeah, you can help by sending me your stuff, and I'm trying to update it. So we are, we're going to try to... No, yeah. whatever. Okay. You have to put it in the Google Doc. Jesus. Yeah, oh. the problem now is Google Google Docs and Gmail is now blocked at my work. Well, so I, have... I can put it in the Google Doc if you send it to me. I, I thought the Google Doc would be easier. I get, We don't have to air our dirty laundry for our listeners. To I know. Hear. I don't know why they 
blocked it at work. They suck. I know. Anyways. How so are you supposed to do you... your podcast No shit. <laughs> How am I supposed to do my other stuff? But anyway. So this was about Noah Gaston. I'll quote the Associated Press story. Who got it from the Press Herald. Yeah, it was, yeah. A window man who contended he shot his wife thinking she was an intruder was sentenced to 40 years for murder on Friday, which was Friday, June, whatever, the end of June. If you recall, his wife was, he said she was coming up the stairs he thought it was an intruder he went and got his gun and shot her because he thought she was still in bed obviously that was untrue it's called pulling a pistorius (laughs) yeah exactly and there was a lot of a lot of reasons why that was a preposterous you can listen to the so he got 40 years for murder the trial was was a while ago i think it was in November, maybe, but because of COVID-19, courts have been backed up. A lot of stuff wasn't allowed, but criminal cases were, but blah, blah, blah. And, so, and also with him, too, he wasn't out of jail yeah, he before was sentencing, jail. so I think they figured, okay, we can delay the sentencing because, you know, he's going to have to be in jail anyway or prison, so what the hell. So, yeah, so he is in there the rest of his... Well, he'll be out in his 70s. If was he in his 40s? No, he's not that old. He's, he was probably, um, they don't say, but I believe he was 30s. Yeah. In his 30s. Yeah. And, and Maine bad is for a, their little and, daughters. Right. And Maine is a no parole state, so um, he it's not like he's going to get out on parole. No, but he could get out early for good time or something. So did you have an update, too? Oh, yes, I do. Um, that was and, my update. He has 40, you got 40 years. There isn't yeah. really much else to tell. My, I have an update on Brianna Taylor, and that was in our last episode that just came out um, yes. at the end of June. It, say her name. Since we released our last episode, or actually rather since we recorded it, things have happened. And a quick re- refresher, Taylor is the 26-year-old emergency room technician. She worked at two hospitals in Louisville. And she was inside her apartment when she was fatally shot by three cops, plainclothes cops, who were attempting to serve a, quote, no-knock search warrant at 1240 a.m. March 13th as part of a narcotics investigation. My entire update is from the Louisville Courier-Journal. You know, they're covering it the best. Some of this is word-for-word from their stories. Those three cops were placed on administrative reassignment pending the results of an internal investigation, which I don't think is completed yet. The report on the case, which I said in our last episode, was, which was heavily redacted. The Courier-Journal has filed a Freedom of Information request for an unredacted version. I did a short update on something that happened right before we released our episode, and so I have a little more detail, um, that on June 18th, Mayor Greg Fisher announced that the police department is initiating the termination of Brent Hankinson, one of the cops. He's the one outside who shot into the house, into the patio door with the curtain closed. Hankinson was accused by interim police chief Robert Schroeder of blindly firing 10 rounds into her apartment. He is not charged with killing her, by the way, or anything. Just firing blindly. It was a patio um, slider that had curtains that you couldn't see through. Schroeder said, I find your conduct a shock to the conscience. Ooh. Um, When he laid out the charges. I am alarmed and stunned you use deadly force in this fashion. 
Also, Detective Joshua Jaynes, the one who originally got the warrant, and he was not one of the three guys at the Taylor home, but he's the one who said that um, suspicious packages belonging to a drug dealer were being delivered to her apartment and that the postal inspector backed it up, and that's how he got the warrant for her apartment. And the postal inspector later said, no, that did not happen. We know nothing about that, which we had in our episode. But he has also been reassigned while the investigation continues and the FBI has opened an investigation. Hankison's lawyer said in his appeal of the firing that it was a cowardly political act and they should have waited till the investigation was done and the evidence was in hand. His attorney, David Lighty, I think it's pronounced, wrote in his appeal that Fisher, the mayor, ordered interim Chief Schroeder to fire Hankinson, quote, before the facts have been fully assembled and that the two created a determination document amped up with high hyperbole mm. um, and the appeals being considered by the police merit board which is required by state law and that determines whether the chief's action was unjustified or supported the board can uphold it or they can reinstate the officer or they can think of a new punishment on july 2nd so just a few days before re- recording this the mayor announced that hillard heinz a chicago consulting firm will conduct a comprehensive review of the louisville metro police department the company plans to review use of force training, bias-free policing, accountability, supervision, community engagement, and more. That's according to the mayor. And the mayor said, quote, it's clear we need to reimagine, by the way, I fucking hate that verb. It's everybody's <laughs> using it now. Reimagine what police looks what policing looks like. And that includes taking deep, hard looks to see what's working Ooh. well and what we can I know be doing better. Our next permanent police chief will be responsible for ensuring that the police department's policies, procedure, and structure align with the goals and values of our entire city. And this review will be a vital tool in ensuring a complete understanding of the department's strengths and weaknesses. But meanwhile, Hmm. several people have built followings, and this is directly from the Courier-Journal, and it was from this weekend, Several people have built followings by airing live footage on social media of the ongoing Breonna Taylor protests because they're having protests like every day. Um, Said Sunday, which is today as we're recording, that Louisville Metro Police made it a point of emphasis to crack down on the social media filming people, um, people who are filming for social media, the protests. Chia Woolfolk was arrested July 1st and is facing felony riot charge. Jason Downey, um, who's a well-known live streamer, was charged with two misdemeanors. Mackenzie Kraps is facing two felony charges, first-degree want endangerment of a police so, officer. Let me... So yeah. they're... They're filming the protest. They're filming... So by... F- Yes. Uh, I'm not and totally so, sure exactly oh. what they're filming, okay. but there, there's protests every day, and I believe yes, they are filming but, police interaction with protests. So be, by doing that, that's considered... Can um, I... I'll, why yes. don't you let me finish, and it might clarify what you're asking. Mackenzie Krabs is facing two felony charges, first-degree wanton endangerment of a police officer, and third-degree assault of a social services worker after she was pulled out of her car by police and arrested Wednesday morning. <laughs> so it's hard to understand how she is endangering the police officer unless she drove her live stream kept running for another 30 minutes after the arrest and near silence with with an officer at one point taking it from her vehicle and i didn't have a chance to look at any of these but other people can to see what they're filming maxwell mitchell said today that the arrests are part of a pattern 
He's been filming the protests every day, airing the footage on his Facebook page, and he said police have targeted those who have used their cell phones to broadcast from Jefferson Square Park, quote, literally being tackled and targeted. And he said, quote, the thing is, the police denied that this was happening. But you could see the truth in those live streams, the faces of the police officers literally looking through the crowds for a specific person. And he's telling this at a rally, he was saying this. Mm -hmm. How could you deny that when, once again, the live streaming is showing the truth? Department spokesman Lamont Washington said, though, that Louisville police officers aren't making a specific effort to arrest those filming the protests. LMPD has no issue with anyone live streaming, Mm -hmm. Washington said, but many of those live streaming are also protesting, and anyone protesting who fails to follow police orders to disperse may be arrested. So that clears that up. I think the Louisville Police Department has a ways to go. And Um, why why do they have to disperse? They don't have a First Amendment right? I don't know. I'm not sure um, what the underlying issues are. I didn't have time to like read more articles and this one didn't have a ton of background about what was going on. I don't know if the rallies are permitted. I, I assume they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't want to speculate necessarily, but I'm sure it's your typical police are just getting sick of it and want to That's what to I was saying. I wasn't really asking. I right. Was just... Yeah, it was a rhetorical I gotcha. But um <clears throat> also the Courier Journal late in June after we recorded and released our last episode, they had an article that kind of looked at the myths and facts surrounding the Breonna Taylor case that are being circulated on social media and TV. And I'm happy to say our report was almost entirely correct, with with one small exception that I'll get to. But I'm going to go over some things here for elaboration because they have more details than I had. So Louisville police got a warrant with a no-knock provision for her apartment. No knock means that they can burst in without knocking. And it was approved by Jefferson Circuit Judge Mary Shaw. Police and prosecutors have said that the officers knocked and announced themselves before breaking down the door. Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, said he heard pounding at the door, but didn't hear anyone announce they were police. He fired one shot at 12.43 a.m., according to his arrest citation, which has since been withdrawn, thinking intruders were breaking in. The bullet hit Sergeant John Mattingly in the leg, requiring surgery. The three cops, Mattingly, Hankison, and Cosgrove, returned fire, shooting at least 22 rounds. And I want to stress, these guys were not in uniform, and their cruisers or cruisers were parked nowhere near the house. So Hmm. even if he had looked out a window or whatever, or out the peephole, he would have no clue who these guys were. Mm Mm-hmm. Brianna Taylor was struck at least eight times and died at 12.48 a.m. in her hallway. Walker wasn't wounded. Neighbors said they didn't hear police announce themselves before entering. And this is according to Taylor's attorneys. A subsequent search of Taylor's apartment found no drugs. And I guess there's a rumor out there that they had the wrong apartment. We had it right in our thing that they did have the quote-unquote right apartment. The Courier-Journal got copies of five search warrants um, that the police got on March 12th as part of our narcotics investigation for the search warrants. There was one for Taylor's apartment and three for neighboring houses on Elliott Avenue. They were all executed at the same time, and there was a fifth one for a house on West Muhammad Ali Boulevard that was not served. The search warrant for Taylor's home 
um, included her street address, her apartment number, and photos of her apartment door, the one that police later broke down with a battering ram. Mm. So, you know, they had the quote-unquote right apartment. The main targets were Jamarcus Glover, a former boyfriend of hers, and Adrian Walker, who is not related to Ken Walker. I said in our report that I'd read Taylor was in the hall, but other reports said she was in her bed, but this confirmed she was in the hall. And he- Ken Walker told police he and Taylor were watching a movie in bed when they heard a loud bang at the door, which scared both of them. Walker said he initially thought it might be Taylor's former boyfriend, but there was no response, and Taylor twice called out, who is it, and no one answered. And we didn't have this in our report. Then Walker said he grabbed his gun, which he has a permit for, saying he was scared to death. Taylor again yelled at the top of her lungs, asking who it was. Walker said in a recording that police made interviewing him a few days after this happened. And he said he was asking too. So both of them are yelling. Somebody's like banging their door down. And Mm -hmm. both of them are yelling, who is it? And nobody's telling them who it is. Mm. How would you react? They got out of bed and were going toward the door when it just came off its hinges, Walker said. So Walker fired one shot. He couldn't see who he was shooting at because the door was just bursting in. Police fired in response, striking Taylor at least eight times. And she shared her apartment. This is the one thing we got wrong. We did mention she shared the apartment with her sister, Janaya Palmer, who wasn't home. Neither of whom, by the way, have any history of drug offenses. Her boyfriend, Ken Walker, I think I said in in our report that they shared the apartment, but Ken Walker didn't live there. He was just spending the night there. He also has no history of drug offenses, and he was not named in the warrant at all. And I said she had previously dated Glover. They had what is called down the report a, quote, passive friendship, which I'm Mm. not sure what that means. I think it's just like an amicable, you stay away from me and I'll stay away from you, but if we see each other, we'll say hi kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence, apparently, that he was getting packages at her apartment, although... He did use, I guess he might have lived with her a few years before, and that address was still on some of his stuff, but the police knew he didn't live there. So it's possible sometimes his mail went there, and he came and got it, you know? Nobody's really defined what a quote-unquote suspicious package is. Um, And as far as body cam footage goes, as we reported... The um, three cops are part of this special criminal interdiction division that don't wear body cams, mm-hmm. so they weren't wearing them. But her attorneys, Sam Aguiar and Lenita Baker, or the, the attorneys for her family, said that after the shooting, more than 120 officers eventually were dispatched to the apartment. <laughs> and you know how they love to swarm to places Jeez, and be part of it. So they say that, yeah, maybe those three guys didn't have body cams. But somebody of those 120 officers... 120 officers, ...must have had body cams. After the shooting, Louisville Police Chief Steve Conrad, who is no longer the police chief, told news media that there was no body cam footage at all. Oh, gee. And that's my Brianna Taylor update. There's more stuff. Her mother has been in the news saying some stuff and everything. But, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, every day there's something. So, you know, but those are the highlights of it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Today we have a, a special New Hampshire which is like our secondary state to Maine episode topic. And I'll just launch into it, okay? Yes, you do that. (laughs) (laughs) Here's how a New York Post article started out after Jelaine Maxwell was arrested Friday in Bradford, New Hampshire. 
Locals in the sleepy rural New Hampshire mm-hmm. town of Bradford say it was exciting to learn that an infamous socialite chose their neck of the woods to hide in, even if some didn't know who Jelaine Maxwell was before her bus there Thursday. Quote, I wouldn't know her if she kicked me, said a host <laughs> from the local eatery, Suna. It's pretty exciting, though, she said of the case, which has grabbed international headlines. That's from the New York Post, and yes, we in northern New England are used to being treated by the big city papers, even the nearby Boston Globe, as a bunch of corn-chewing hicks out of a Murder, She Wrote episode. Yep. For instance, in a very in another New York Post article, a very short one from Thursday, the afternoon of her arrest, Bradford is described as tiny, bucolic, home to only 1,600 people, small, blink and miss it, and that's all in an 11-paragraph story. <laughs> so, been to New Hampshire much? I guess not. What they don't get is Maxwell followed a time-honored tradition of fugitives somehow ending up in New Hampshire, <laughs> many of them from New York. Some of this that's not about Maxwell may sound familiar as we covered it in episode 52. It's Draga and he's got a gun. <laughs> But first, let's catch up with Maxwell. For the one or two of you who don't know, she's longtime companion of Jeffrey Epstein, sex predator and pedophile. And she helped him procure many of his victims. And I just want to say, as far as the alleged, the not alleged, she denies that she did any of that. I saw or heard somewhere today somebody refer to the newspaper accounts that she was involved. I don't consider them so much news accounts as multiple accounts by victims and people who know. I think we can pretty much drop the whole alleged thing, at least for this purposes of this. This isn't a, you know, we're not a newspaper and, you know, it's do you believe her or do you believe dozens and dozens of victims? And I'm going with the victims. Mm. Um, In any case, she was arrested Thursday and charged in the U.S. Southern District Court of New York with enticing a minor to travel to engage in criminal sexual activity, transporting a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, conspiracy to commit both of those offenses, and perjury in connection with a sworn deposition. And it was six charges in all. Some of those were double. According to a story today on July 5th by The Guardian, she's being held in Merrimack County Jail, which is in Boscoin, <laughs> which is in Boscoin, New Hampshire. Yes, yeah, so a come down for her. And she'll at some point be extradited to New York, probably before this podcast has been um, uploaded. Maxwell, 58, faces up to 35 years in prison on the charges. I won't go into the whole history of the Epstein thing. If you're not familiar, Google him. But I'll give you a general overview of Maxwell's part. She's the daughter of Robert Maxwell, who was another psychopath and possible sexual predator. And aside from being Epstein's right-hand gal, she was apparently friends with such creep-worthy guys as Prince Andrew and Kevin Spacey and people like that. She was Robert Maxwell's youngest child. He had nine kids, and Mm. she was reportedly a favorite. He was, at one point, the wealthiest man in the UK. He was a publisher. He had newspapers and magazines and other stuff. He was a member of Parliament for a while. After he died and went to hell in 1990, (laughs) She came over to the U.S. and she hooked up with Epstein. Her father died after falling off his yacht. The lady. <laughs> Sorry, this is the way he died. I don't know why that. Made well, me laugh. you're gonna laugh even more. The lady Jelaine in the Canary Islands. Some believe, including me, 
that he had been peeing off the side, as he often did, naked. He liked to do it that way. It was officially ruled a heart attack combined with accidental drowning. Although three pathologists have been unable to agree on the cause of his death at the inquest, he had been found to have been suffering from serious heart and lung conditions. Mm. Murder was ruled out. Suicide was ruled out. Jelaine always said he was murdered. And as with all such deaths, of course, there were conspiracy theories. It turns out he was involved in um, huge fraudulent crap. And so that's a possible murder or suicide motive. But this from The Guardian, and I'm quoting The Guardian pretty much here. Ken Lennox, a photographer for The Mirror, said, quote, He used to get up at night and pee over the stern of the ship. Everybody knew this, and he weighed about 22 stone at this time. And it's funny, since this is British, to clarify 22 stone in parentheses after they have 140 kilograms. But since we're American, (laughs) this translates to about 300 pounds. He weighed somewhere between 300 and 310 pounds. So he's a big un. And the railings were wire, Lennox said, so I think he lost his balance because he's very (laughs) (laughs) top-heavy. And he doesn't think he committed suicide. And by the way, a photographer at the newspaper I worked for in New Hampshire for 25 years, the union leader, who also did photography for the state police, told me once that many drowning victims found in New Hampshire lakes and the like are found with their pants down. Why? Because they were drinking beer, they were stood up to pee, and they fell overboard. Hmm, That makes sense. Yeah, and these are male victims, of course, by the way. Anyway, I digress. Many of the stories about Jelaine that talk about her father bring up how he was a big fraudster. It was found out after he died. There was all this uncovering of money stealing. He stole the pension fund to try to keep his businesses afloat. Blah, 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 and all this fraud stuff I won't go into. 20 years before, 1971, he got in trouble for stock manipulation. And a report Mm. on that said he was unfit to run a public company. And yet... He became this wildly wealthy media tycoon, so go figure. Mm. Fewer of those stories go farther mention he was a controlling bully who enjoyed humiliating his kids in public. Though Jelaine, the youngest, reportedly wasn't treated as poorly as the other ones, and this is not to make excuses for her or anything. I can't find any references, but uh, then one of the problems with Googling things like Robert Maxwell and underage and sexual abuse and stuff yeah. is that you get flooded with Jelaine Epstein stories, but I know I heard on one of the like half dozen Epstein podcasts I listened to late last year, early this year, that her father, who was notoriously unfaithful, had a predilection for underage girls and possibly was inappropriate with her. Unfortunately, I couldn't find it for this report. I even listened to a couple Jelaine episodes of some of those podcasts and couldn't find the reference, but take what you will from that. On the podcast Devil in the Darkness, Laura Goldman, who was a friend of Maxwell, Jelaine Maxwell, said she fully believes Jelaine knowingly recruited girls for Epstein. She knew what he'd do to them, and she was happy to do it. She wanted to keep him happy, just like she was with her father, um, who taught her and her other siblings that normal rules don't apply. Quote, she was raised not to worry about the other people. They were a means to an end, Goldman said. Her father um, was born in the Czech Republic before World War II. His name, I was going to write it down, but now it was Jean something Czechoslovakian. Um, He changed it a couple times before settling on Robert Maxwell. He was a psychopath in many ways. Several times he told acquaintances Jelaine was just like him. And as the Mm. podcast Broken describes it, her takeaway from her father, from her father's death and life apparently seemed to be you can defraud people for decades and get away with it. After he died, she, like he did in his younger years, had to reinvent herself 
and she moved to New York, and she was an expert. I think there's a lot of speculation. One reason she went to New York is she knew some people there. He had sent her there when he bought the Daily News, like, to be his emissary, and also that Americans are more enamored of, like, British, you know, celebrity, and uh, people wouldn't know enough of her and his shit. She knew how to get into the right circles, and we know how easily lured even the rich and famous are when they think someone has money and stature. Mm -hmm. Look at our Clark Rockefeller episode. And, you know, I love how people blame the young girls for getting involved with Epstein when he managed to lure in rich and famous people from across the world. I know. To, like, cover for him and shit. And Maxwell and Epstein met sometime in the mid-90s in New York. Some reports say that they initially dated, but Goldman, her friend, said Epstein had the cash and Jelaine had the connections. And she said she bets they slept together, but they didn't date. You know, as boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. She says Jelaine was madly in love with him and would do anything for him. I think she was, I think the way, like, she was really devoted is, like, too positive a thing. But to her father, she was, like, really under his thrall. And I think Mm -hmm. she just transferred that to Epstein, you know, another psychopath who wanted to control her and make her do things. In any case, she was soon elevated to his confidant and, quote, best friend, in his words. And face it, too, a guy like him doesn't really have a girlfriend because it would get in the way of him raping all those underage girls. Uh She was his intro to high society, and she was also his key to luring girls to rape. If it's not obvious to people... Her role was key to his so-called success at luring young girls. Yes. She was usually the first contact. And if there's a woman involved, a 13, 14-year-old girl, you know, this fancy woman wants to bring her to do this job and they don't know what, they think it's okay, you know. After Epstein was arrested a year ago and then killed himself, you know, the second time the most important man of her in her life died under quote-unquote mysterious circumstances, uh, many have pointed out, although I do believe he, I think he killed himself. I know by the conspiracy stuff. I My think feeling is I don't really care. But yeah. Yeah. I don't think this case ends with his death. No. So well, there's plenty more here, but what I want to say about him killing himself is I think what people might not necessarily get is a lot of psychopaths when they realize the game is up, particularly very controlling ones. That's their last act yes. of control. Exactly. You know, and yep. But since then, in August, when that happened, a big game everyone's played is Where's Shalane? Mm-hmm. On the Devil in the Darkness podcast, family friend Goldman says she thinks Shalane was an agent, like many believe her father was, for foreign governments, able to cozy up to world leaders and learn about their private behavior, catch support men in compromising her legal acts, and then blackmail them, or allow the countries she was working for, apparently, to blackmail them. And she said that that would be Jelaine's insurance policy when the shit hit the fan, and why mm-hmm. she going to be so smug about things. Goldman said on that podcast, which was recorded last year, that she didn't think Jelaine would ever be found, haha, or face charges... Mentioning places like France and Israel are hard to extradite from, and Britain would want to protect Prince Andy and others. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeffrey Coven, an attorney on the same podcast, said he thinks that Jelaine is not so much an agent with blackmail insurance policies, but just arrogant. And he's never surprised by the arrogant of wealthier people. 
um, who thumb their nose at the justice system and kind of say, catch me if you can. Vanity Fair, in an article, in its July, its latest article, July-August edition, writes, She was said to be hiding deep in the sea in a submarine, which she was licensed to pilot. Mm -hmm. Or she was lying low in Israel under the protection of the Mossad, the powerful intelligence agency with whom her late father supposedly tangled. Or she was in the FBI witness protection program. Or ensconced in luxury in a villa in the south of France or sunning herself naked on the coast of Spain, or holed up in a high-security doomsday bunker belonging to rich and powerful friends whose lives might implode, should Maxwell reveal what she knows. All the dirty secrets of the dirty world that she and Epstein shared. Quote, Maxwell is not going to be able to hide David Boyes, who Vanity Fair describes as the powerful super lawyer, who represents several victims who are suing her. And by the way, he was a character in Rowan um, Farrow's cat- yes. Catch and Kill. I thought um, he sounded familiar. Yeah. yeah. He, and he told that to Vanity Fair in August 2019. Quotes him as saying, There's no place in the civilized world where she can go and not be found. None like Epstein, she does not have the massive resources that would be required to carve out a new life in some obscure place where she cannot be extradited from. But, Vanity Fair wrote, it's a big planet for, for a citizen of three nations. The United States, Great Britain, and France. She has three passports. Who speaks four languages fluently and has a world of connections. Almost a year after Boy's statement, and I'm again quoting Vanity Fair, Maxwell remained at large, beyond the reach of attorneys, tabloid reporters, and a 10,000-pound reward from the Sun in London. Quote, it's a little bit like Elvis. You get lots of reports, but they're hard to verify, Boy said in May. Judge Deborah Freeman, an attorney representing several Epstein victims in February, in a crowded Manhattan courtroom in February, so pre-COVID obviously, said, you have made efforts to locate her and have been unable to, she asked the attorneys. They were seeking a court order to serve her via alternative service, including email, after their attempts to find her had turned into a cat-and-mouse chase. Yes, Your Honor, replied the attorney, that they couldn't find her. And this, still from Vanity Fair, the judge granted the request. But while the complaint apparently reached Maxwell, it provided no clue to her location. Then, in late June, um, according to Vanity Fair, the tabloids placed her in Paris, where she was reportedly residing in a luxury apartment, walking the streets near the Israeli embassy with a large patterned blanket draped around her face and head, a scenario (laughs) a friend of hers described as drivel. Quote, she could be anywhere, said one person familiar with the links people went to track her down. Russia, China, Singapore, the Middle East, England. She's in some friend's castle in the middle of nowhere or in a tent somewhere deep in some desert. Wherever she is, she's on the down low. Last August, the New York Post published a photo of her supposedly in an in and out burger in L.A. And why don't we have those here? I want to know. But many they're supposed to be good. Right, and many said the photo was doctored. And the Daily Mail said, no, she wasn't in L.A. She was actually at a friend's in Massachusetts. In 2018, she'd stayed at a guy pal's opulent mansion in Manchester by the Sea Mass. And though Mm -hmm. not to be confused with Manchester, New Hampshire, which is New Hampshire's largest city, and the one in Massachusetts changed its name a few decades ago so people would stop getting them confused because they're hoity-toity and Manchester, New Hampshire isn't. It's a quick drive to New Hampshire from there, and that could possibly easily have been her connection to the New Hampshire property where she was found. The New York Post story that I mentioned at the beginning of this, ironically titled Bradford, New Hampshire, Everything to Know About Where Jelaine Maxwell Was Arrested, 
actually has very little about it, except, you know, it's a tiny place where nothing happens, and everybody who lives there is a cartoon caricature of, um, you know, (laughs) moronic northern New England um, cluelessness. That's my um, take. The three reporters that it took to write those 11 paragraphs even managed to find two residents who were stunned. Stunned! that this could happen in their town. I guess, like the big shot reporters from the big city, they haven't been paying much attention. When I worked for the Union Leader, New Hampshire statewide newspaper, where I was from 1986 to 2011, we had a saying, there's always a New Hampshire connection. (laughs) Everything that happens, there's a New Hampshire connection. And Jelaine Maxwell, as I said earlier, isn't the first criminal on the run to make the mistake of thinking that just because New Hampshire isn't on the radar of the fancy city people that they spend time with, that it's a remote backwater that no one will notice. Some of this may be familiar to those of you who've listened to episode 52, so forgive me as I plagiarize myself. First, a little bit about New Hampshire. It's a small state, both in size and population, one of three northern New England states. It's crammed like a wedge between Vermont to the west and Maine to the east. People who live in other places may think the three states are interchangeable, but people who live in the three states know they're not. New Hampshire has a lot of oddities. In a region, northern New England, that prides itself on its independence, New Hampshire fully embraces it with no sales tax, no income tax, and the words live free or die on its license plates. Um, And by the way, it has twice the COVID cases Maine does because they're gonna live free and die right it has a few heady weeks in the spotlight every four years because it is the first in the nation presidential primary if you want to meet someone running for president you can do it then believe me as Mm -hmm. a reporter there I did it many times it has 18 miles of sea coast um as opposed to Maine's 3,000 plus a concession by Massachusetts centuries ago in Massachusetts when Maine was also part of Massachusetts they gave New Hampshire that little piece so it would have a seaport. And more importantly, New Hampshire has a history of some criminal fugitive visitors. My theory is that people fleeing the law figure if they go north to these remote states that no one really thinks much about, they can disappear, maybe get to Canada. You know, they're going north on I-95. I don't think Jelaine did this, but because um, I don't think she would drive up I-95. But then when they get to that part in eastern Massachusetts where it meets 93 going north to New Hampshire, it seems like that's the quickest way to get to obscurity. This is particularly true for New York City folks. Even though it was before the interstate system was built, in 1913, millionaire Harry K. Thaw, who'd shot his girlfriend's husband, architect Samford White, in New York City in 1906, escaped to Canada from a New York hospital. Canada deported him to Colebrook, New Hampshire, which is up near the border, and he spent some time hanging out at the Monadnock Motel as New York wrangled over his legal status. I think he was there for a month or so, playing golf and doing all sorts of stuff before he got sent back to New York. Rodney Alcala, most commonly known as the dating game murderer, Ugh. fled some of his first known crimes in California in the late 60s, including a brutal assault on an 8-year-old girl, changed oh. his name to John Berger, and was accepted to New York University's School of Art as an undergraduate under that alias. He spent summers of 1968 through 1971 as an arts and drama counselor at a summer camp in in Georgia's Mill, New Hampshire, and a couple of the young women he counseled recognized him on a wanted poster at the post office one afternoon and brought their concerns to the camp director, and Alcala was arrested and brought back to California in August 1971, and that was just for the assault charge on the eight-year-old girl, which he got out of... It's a long story. 
he was later on the dating game in 1978, and he wasn't arrested and, and tried on his serial murders um, for some years. Bernie Getz, also known as the Subway Vigilante, shot and seriously wounded four young men on a New York City subway in December 1984 and spent nine days on the run, ultimately surrendering to police in Concord, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Quote, I'm the person they're seeking in New York, he told them, and it took him a bit to convince the Concord cop at the desk that he was an actual fugitive because the cop hadn't heard of him. But he was finally taken into custody and Mirandized. A Concord cop interviewed him twice, audiotaping and videotaping him, and that's when Getz famously said, at least for people of our generation it was famous, said, quote, My intention was to murder them, to hurt them, to make them suffer as much as possible. And later he says, if I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. Mm-hmm. My problem was I ran out of bullets. <sighs> Getz was acquitted in 1987, by the way, for those of you who don't know the story, because the four kids who he says attacked him were black. And he had been mugged before, so you, you have a right to shoot black kids. His lawyer said that the statements he made to the Conquer cops and other things he said were the product of emotion and an overactive imagination. Mm-hmm. And I also talked about him a couple episodes ago when I reviewed Trial by Media. Also in Colebrook, that's the place, the little town where Harry Thaw ended up in 1913, Christopher Wilder, sometimes known as the Beauty Queen Killer, Mm. A serial killer out of Australia who killed a bunch of people across the United States ended a six-week U.S. cross-country rape and murder spree in Colebrook in 1984. On April 13th of that year, he was stopped at Vicks Getty gas station in Colebrook on the corner of Main and Bridge Streets. State Troopers Leo Jellison and Wayne Fortier recognized the car as one that there was a bulletin out for. He was out of his car and he saw the troopers approach. He went back to get his gun. Jellison grabbed him, they struggled, and Wilder got off two shots, one of which went through him and seriously wounded Jellison, the second of which killed Wilder. Um, And if you want to know more about Colebrook and something really bad that happened, and Leo Jellison's involved in that too, listen to episode 52 again. It's Draga, and he's got a gun. So Jelaine, for whatever reason, but probably because New Hampshire seemed more remote to her than anywhere in the fancy places in Britain, Israel, France, California... Florida or New York, where she'd spent time, bought a 4,500-square-foot, four-bedroom house in Bradford, New Hampshire, for $1.07 million. And while it's a far cry from the 51-room mansion where she grew up in Oxford, England, it's on 156 acres, and as houses go, it's nothing to sneer at, where we come from at least. It was described by Southby's Four Season International Realty, which listed it as, quote, a stunning custom-designed timber frame home, an amazing retreat for the nature lover who also wants total privacy. Hmm. Its features included a first-floor master suite, large walk-in closet, field stone fireplace, window seat, and a large master bath with a soaking tub, a walk-in shower, double vanity, gourmet kitchen with extensive cherry cabinetry, Ugh. a Viking six burner i know i knew you'd hate the cherry cabinets a viking six burner stove two wolf ovens a sub-zero fridge breakfast bar and extensive counter space two walls of windows that look out over the massive perennial gardens and waterfall wow according to the new york post it also had a winding private dirt road about a quarter of a mile long that leads up to what they call the sprawling manse and i have to say not to belabor it but well 4500 square feet is big it's not a sprawling mansion, I don't think. Yeah. You know, it's it's a big house. It's big. But about halfway up the driveway, a modest black gate, according to the New York Post, cuts the road, barring vehicles from getting any closer. 
Farther away along the driveway, glimpses can be seen of the Maxwell Estate nestled between the towering pines, peeking from behind the leaves. That's, I guess, as poetic as New York Post gets. Mm. The best the New York Post and others could do to describe Bradford, the town, however, besides remarking on how small and rural it was ad nauseum, was to say it's 30 miles from Concord, the state capital. It's also in the Sunapee Lake region, home to several colleges and many a wealthy person's seasonal getaway, being less than a two-hour drive from Boston, less than an hour from Manchester, if you want to take your private plane, near ski areas. So it's not some backwater. But like many bucolic places in northern New England, it's part of two separate worlds. There's the year-round world of the people who live there year-round and work for a living and go about their lives. And then there's the mostly hidden private world of the very rich, who jet in and out and rarely rub elbows, even before the pandemic, with the regular folk. You can live here and not even realize those people are around nearby, both in Maine and New Hampshire. Yeah. Maxwell, who has $20 million in 15 bank accounts... Um, according to prosecutors, bought the property through an LLC, which is a limited liability company. And as someone who covers real estate in my day job, that's incredibly common and makes it very hard to find out who the actual owner is. Yes, I was going to say, she bought a house. How did they not know? But it's very common. It doesn't only go for pricey property bought by socialite fugitives, but it also goes for the long abandoned store on Main Street that someone just bought for $37,000. Yes. Almost every property I cover in my job is owned and bought by an LLC. It's like that one when I said about the guy that... Died in his house or something, and that same thing. That was right. it was owned by an LLC, so right. they didn't know who owned it. Yeah, right. It's and it makes it hard to do your job sometimes. But anyway, and also hard to know when famous fugitives buy property. In June, she'd filed in court to keep documents about her sex life sealed. Fuck her. Um, yeah, I know. So someone, presumably her lawyers, knew where she was because I don't think you can do a court filing like that without knowing where the person is. The documents are from a seven-hour, 418-page deposition she gave in 2015 in a lawsuit filed by victim Virginia Roberts Geoffrey, who has since settled. I'm not sure whether or not they had anything to do with the law tracking her down, but several reports said they had known where she was for several weeks and were keeping an eye on her. In any case, according to some reports, particularly the New York Post, the FBI agents, accompanied by local cops, rang the bell at 8.30 a.m. I don't know how they got by that gate. Either they drove around it or someone opened it for them. So if you believe the post, it's very different from the consideration given to Brianna Taylor and others who are screamed awake in the wee hours as their door is broken down. I guess it helps to be rich and white. (laughs) <laughs> if you didn't already know that the, so that was the New York Post who said they rang the bell politely the Guardian reported that more than 20 armed agents and police Ooh. are reported to have taken part in the early morning operation that led to her being handcuffed at her secluded rural retreat in New Hampshire and taken into custody officers were said to have broken down the front door so hmm. poster Guardian, they could have rang the doorbell and then bro- broken down the door. My guess is because, you know, rich and white and nice, big, expensive house, I'm going to go for the post version. Also, since Guardian is British, maybe they were told they knocked on the door and they got it wrong, you know, because of, I don't know, accents or language <laughs> or anything. And they also don't attribute their account, so I don't know. Yeah. And as we know from doing this so many times, things are repeated over and over and get wrong. But according to the Post, she ran into a bedroom when told authorities were there for her. 
But she eventually came out on her own and immediately asked for her lawyer, which I say, even though she's a sleazebag predator, good for her. In a court filing, prosecutors said Maxwell should stay behind bars pending trial because she might flee, giving her extensive international ties, the three passports, the $20 million, mm-hmm. etc. The Washington Post has an 18-page indictment online, and I'll put that on our webpage if you want more of the nitty-gritty. Now, some people, like Becky, are hoping Jelaine comes clean, and I see that Becky sent me a around 5 o'clock, a couple hours before we started recording, a thing where some friend or somebody with knowledge of her speculates she's going to come clean. And maybe she will. I don't know. I'm not as confident. First of all, Epstein is dead. So she has nothing to gain as far as making a deal about him. Even if she's going to finger big shots involved, they'd have to be pretty big because the charges against her as someone who had been doing this since 1994 with dozens of people with complaints about her are going to be greater than those against anyone else charged now that Epstein is dead. He's the only one who would have more charges. And I know I'm not a lawyer, but that's my assessment. If you're going to make a deal to talk, then you have to have something big to bargain with. And I'm not saying there aren't big names that she can bargain with. We'll we'll see how it plays out. I'm not saying she's not going to, but also she's a psychopath and there would really have to be something in it for her to talk. I'd see her more likely committing suicide like Epstein might probably have done than come clean, to tell you the truth. For the psychopath... As I said, that's a way to control things, although she was more controlled, I think, in a lot of ways than controlling. Lauren Goldman, the family friend, told The Guardian she spoke to Jelaine a few weeks ago, so I guess she knew where she was. (laughs) And she said she believed Maxwell would never disclose information about Prince Andrew. And since this is from The Guardian, of course, Prince Andrew is the, you know, the big thing to him. He's such a sleazebag. But anyway, Goldman did say, however, uh, Maxwell said she'd have to go for a plea deal with prosecutors. Goldman said that Jelaine has always told me she would never ever say anything about Prince Andrew. I think she felt he was her friend and she was never going to say anything about him. On the other hand, she knew she was coming to the end of the road. She felt she was a victim of Epstein and was always a little afraid of him. And an interesting side note, the charges are in the Southern District of New York Federal Court. If you're in the U.S. and follow the news, you'll know Mm -hmm. that Trump fired Jeffrey Berman, the lead prosecutor of that court, a few weeks ago. A lot of the talk revolved around the fact that Trump was displeased that Berman went after his buddies, like the increasingly insane Rudy Giuliani (laughs) and others. But here's another thing. Berman also was leading the investigation into Epstein. And anyone who's followed the Epstein saga, and I think I first read about it in either Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone, and my memory is that um, it was Becky, you know, in 2007 when we went to Florence to visit Liz. Mm-hmm. I always bring like Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone yeah. because they have really long articles that I can read on the plane. And for some reason, I'm remembering it was then, but I couldn't really find a 2007 article. So it could have been the now famous Vanity Fair 2003 article. Mm-hmm. Though my memory is I read it on a trip, but that's a material. In any case, I remember the article, the first article I read about Epstein. Um, Trump played a significant role in Ugh. in having sex with underage girls as young as 13. So if the feds knew something was going down as long as a few weeks ago, which reports said they did, who's to say it also didn't have something to do with Berman being fired, right? So Trump yeah. could put his own guy, or um, he hasn't of put course. his own guy. The interim person isn't his guy, but he wants his guy appointed. No matter what happens, two things are certain. The truth will come out in some form. And there's always a New Hampshire angle. 
That's always New Hampshire. And you had something to say about her coming clean. Well, I didn't think she was going to come clean. Like, I thought she would probably, if she has proof of other people, not give a shit and tell if she could get immunity. I, I don't like think you she'll said, get immunity. I, I think she might get a lesser sentence. But the, it depends on the name, what she has. She's not going to get immunity. information. But anyways, uh, well, in any case, right. that's not even what I'm saying. Right. I'm not saying that she's going to do it out of the, like, nobility or right. or any reason to, but to save her own right. skin. Right. Or possibly revenge on somebody. Right. But I also think about, uh, just about Prince Andrew. Oh, he's so gross. One thing I've been saying from the beginning, this whole thing with, with Harry and Meghan, I think that the reason that's being made such a big deal of in the British press and just everywhere is kind of to deflect attention from Prince Andrew and the yes. fact that he's a fucking pedophile. Because this whole thing with Prince Harry isn't really that big a deal. He's not in line for the throne or anything like that. Well, he just, you know, I will he say, left to make a new life. Right, which, I agree. Yes, it's a I, big deal. I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you. But it's, I will say it's not that big a deal to us because I know. We, we fought a revolution we, that we just celebrated yesterday. So we wouldn't have to have the biggest welfare users in the world on our <laughs> role and, and bow and curtsy to people and call them sir and shit. Yeah, I, I know that's a generalization of why we fought the revolution, but it's kind of it in a nutshell. The British are very particular. I, I get that. About the and I do. And I'm not saying it's not a big deal. But right. it's less of a deal than fucking Andrew being a fucking pedophile, which he is. Right. I, and I agree. And it's, it, nobody it, is really talking about that, but they're because, all clutching their pearls about friggin' well, Harry. Right. And the whole thing about Harry and Meghan, too, is the the racism. Well, um, yeah, they're, they are racist. And people are racist. Anytime you read any article, like, from a British news outlet, and you read the, the comments, which I try not to, but sometimes I never you read comments. And there's all sorts of racist shit. Yeah. There's all sorts of racist shit but about I agree her. So no that, wonder they friggin' right. left. And so they're all obsessed. And not all. We have a lot of great British listeners who are not like this. But it's more concerning to them that Harry has married a beautiful biracial woman and wants to start a life of his own and live like a normal person than that fucking Prince Andrew, who, by the way, has two daughters, is a fucking Ugh. pedophile. Disgusting. I know. Well, like I said earlier about Epstein, whether or not he killed himself, who I, I think he right, probably killed himself. Shit. I don't care. It doesn't. It doesn't end the investigation. He's not the only person that was right. doing it. There were plenty of other men involved and women. But it blows men. my mind how many men out there are a willing to sexually assault and let's Ugh. call it sexual assault and rape it, underage girls it's not have sex with Ugh. and how many men are willing to turn their heads or make excuses for it I that know. happened that makes me sick. and even with all the reporting and stuff that's going on in this and everything people are more engaged in Epstein and what he did and Jelaine and what she did and blah 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 I don't think people really give a shit that much that these were young girls whose lives were ruined and who were being raped and stuff. I, I think know. that's, you know, that's kind of a side issue. People like the sleaziness of it, but they're, they're more interested. And 
Anyway. Anyway. Well, I hope she fucking suffers. It'll be interesting. Maybe by the time this people are listening to this, more will have happened in that. I do think that she's, in a lot of ways, she's a psychopath, too, and that she doesn't give a shit about other people. And she let herself... Like, I know a lot of people are controlled in our victims. I think she, and maybe it's just what she knew from her father, allowed herself to be in that position and it felt made her feel important to be the woman who could do this for him and i think she got you know she's just as complicit as he was but i also think that in this world it's true that when you are wealthy and white you get away she had good reason to think that she was she was right. not going to get right. that, that nothing would happen that she to was her. immune to being punished right. because because look at Look what look at the people what they do and they right. and they just get away with it. They, right. it this it's had ridiculous. been going on since nineteen ninety three or ninety four and people and they have got away with it. He got a slap on the wrist. Right. And the Tampa Bay Tribune or whatever the newspaper, I'm sorry I'm getting the name wrong, and everything and Vanity Fair have been writing about it for since the mid two thousands. That's right. I know. And it was still happening. It was still going on. And and so why would anyone think? That they wouldn't get away with it. And I guess I shouldn't just say rich and white because R. Kelly got away with similar shit. Right. So. But I think if you're rich, rich and white, it Rich helps. and powerful. And Bill Cosby and Michael got Jackson. away with it. And Michael Jackson. But so yeah, I rich think th- and powerful. I think just like everything else, if you're black, you have to be like like twice as rich and powerful as the white, <laughs> as the white people Maybe. to do yeah. it. I mean, and Epstein, the only reason he, he was rich is because he was a con man. And But anyway, Ugh. so that's my report. Well, thank you. I, I'm, everybody's interested to see what's going to happen now. Yeah. When I heard she was arrested, I was like, yeah. I know. I was, I was, when I saw New Hampshire, I'm like, I know. here we go again. <laughs> and also that's near where um, Nikki, our sister Nikki and brother-in-law Todd's camp is. Ooh. It's right near, I'm familiar with that area, yeah. It's, um, they could have seen her at the Quickie Mart. They might have. It's because it's right. It's right near there. It's in that area. That's but. funny. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. And so, how about some recommendations? <laughs> We're just doing one this episode, and then one another episode to kind of spread them out to mm-hmm. less work for us more episodes for you guys it's a win-win so do you have a recommendation yes i do and before i start this i want you you have to you have to keep quiet oh no how how am I because gonna... okay you haven't watched the show and i know you have opinions about it and but you need to not talk about it because you haven't watched it. Because okay. it's about the only thing. Okay, let me have a. a can I just say you. one thing before you can about me? It's not, not talking. Council of Dads. Oh, can yeah, I just go. say one thing about me not talking? Yes, I will not talk. But when you're done, can I just do a one sentence yes. opinion about the show that I have never watched? Yes, even though I don't know what show you're going to do right now. You'll know in a minute because I can't, as you know, I now live with our parents <laughs> and I watch TV with mom every night, our 84-year-old mother. And for some reason, I can't, and so I used to always watch TV by myself 
or in Netflix and whatever, and I watched whatever. The only way to do it. I wanted to watch, which a lot of it was true crime stuff, which I haven't been able to watch lately because mom doesn't really seem to like that. As a matter of fact, we've been watching, since we ended with this show, we've been watching, I made her watch, I know this much is true on HBO with me, which I'm not done watching yet, and she doesn't like it. I knew and she would And she said, well, too bad. And she didn't like the book, apparently. No, she, she didn't like the remember. book. I, I remember And she told, even though I said, you did read the book, because our book group read yeah. it, and she said, I don't see why I ever would have read this book. She read it, and she did not like it. And yes, we discussed it extensively, like, 20 years ago. I yes, remember, it was. Clearly. It was when it first came out. So anyways, but this is I not that. But what we have watched the whole four seasons of is this is us <laughs> which momo has never watched and yet she hates which i'm not saying that you do, i'm not saying your hatred is unwarranted uh, mom and i have watched every single episode i've watched many of them twice because i i think yeah. i watched all of them well because i watched the whole thing with her from beginning to end she wanted to I think Ken Olin of 30-something is the, is not surprisingly, is the producer of this show. And he mm. did Brothers and Sisters, which you did used to watch. I did. Um, I liked that. And it's similar to that in a lot of ways. But so, bad reenactments, I'm taking off one point because the structure of the show is um, showing the this family at different points of their life. So it shows the couple, oh, and let me tell you about the show. Just a, a brief synopsis is about this this family that have triplets in 1980. One of them is adopted because they lost a baby at birth. How is he, he a triplet? Listen, just go with it. Let me explain. She was pregnant with triplets. One of them died at birth. This little boy was abandoned and he was in the nursery and they decided to adopt him. It's okay. It just go. That's just the story. It switches from like 1980 to like mid 90s to present day. So it shows them in all these different times of their life. And also it shows the 70s when the couple first met and some of them when they were kids. The reason I'm taking a point away is they have different actors playing them at different parts of their life and the, the casting is really shitty as far as I'm concerned because unless you knew what you were watching you wouldn't know that that kid was supposed to be the other person because they don't look anything like them. So I'm taking a, a point off for bad reenactments. Narrative cliches, I'm taking a point off <laughs> <laughs> because it's very cliché. <laughs> Everything is a cliche. <laughs> it's just the way it is. See, I don't even have to talk. I know. Racial gender stereotypes. I think gender stereotypes. I'm taking a point off. I don't. Listen, would you stop laughing? I don't know. You know, the third sibling, Randall, is black. You know, his family, his wife's family. There's a lot of black characters in the show. I don't want to say whether I think they're stereotypes or not because I don't. I'm white, and I feel like if I say anything about that, I'm, I don't know. I mean, if I were black, I'd probably have a different... I don't know how black people feel about it, so that's They probably feeling. don't watch it. Well, the actors in it probably watch it. and Well, maybe they don't. There are some stereotypes. <clears throat> he finds his birth father in the first season, who's a recovered addict. The reason he, his father abandoned him was because... The black he, guy? The black guy was an addict. Mm, and that no part stereotypes is, there. Yes, that was... And but then now that he's old, he's kind of an old wise stereotype. Mm, no so stereotypes that, there. Uh, Gerald McRaney 
plays a nice old wise doctor OBGYN. It's kind of stereotypical. So there's a couple things that are annoying. So I'm taking a point off for that. Lack of good visuals. Nah, I, it's fine. It's the filming is fine. I don't know. I don't. I don't really have any problem with that. Missing pieces. I'm not taking a point off there because I don't know. It's a drama. Whatever pieces are missing, they fill in sooner or later. Inaccuracy, anachronisms. Surprisingly, anachronisms. Anachronisms. I mean, there are when they have flashbacks to the um, 70s. It's fairly accurate. You cannot uh, tell me. I'm breaking my vow of silence. You cannot tell me. That they don't have people in the 70s and 80s and shit saying stuff that nobody no, said back then. No, they don't. No, there's nothing that sticks out to me as inaccurate or an anachronism. They don't. The The thing about the way it's the story's told is a lot of the flashbacks are not... They're not out in the world doing stuff. It's when they're at home and stuff. So there's not... Nothing... No, nothing really... And I'm usually a stickler for that. Like with Mrs. Maisel, right. that's why I don't that's watch true. it anymore. I'm surprised that I'm saying it. But I, there was nothing in it that I'm like, oh, that never would have happened. The father was a Vietnam veteran. His brother went to Vietnam too and that's a long story but that part that takes place in the late 60s there wasn't anything in it that they were saying or doing that I felt was ugh they would never have done they don't have that saying they don't do that it was so I'm not taking a point off oh no I did oh the reason I did it wasn't for the anachronisms for the inaccuracies and mm. it was again because of the casting mm. like for instance the the sister in the triplets Kate is she, she the fat one Yes, she is a very large woman, the poor woman. There's a girl that plays her as a, from about 9 to maybe 12, the first few seasons. And then there's a girl that plays her at age 15 to 17. And then there's her. And then sometimes they have a baby or they have like a little tiny girl that plays her. Well, the one that, the 9 to 12 year old, doesn't look anything like her except she's chubby. And she's taller then the brothers, and she's fairly tall, just doesn't look anything like her. And then the one that's a 15 to 17 is shorter and does kind of look like her. Like, she looks like she could look, you know. So that's very disconcerting, especially if it's in the same episode where they're switching to different mm-hmm. time, you know, periods. It's like the younger one is too big to be her. She's too tall. It's very, very annoying. And the kid mm-hmm. that plays Randall, the black brother... None of them look anything alike. Mm. None of them do. They're all black. That's the only thing. I think they tried to go with the best actors, especially for Mm. kids. Because they're good actors. All the kids are good actors. I have to say that. Mm. But as far as that, that's very annoying. So I'm taking a point off. Storytelling, I'm not taking a point off. I kind of like that. Showing their history. It's an interesting way of of showing their characters how they develop. So I'm not going to take a point off of that. Freshness, I'm taking a point off because, like I said, it's very cliched and soapy and, you know, mm-hmm. there's you can pretty much figure out what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, repetition, <laughs> I'm taking a point off. <laughs> there is a lot of things repeated and stuff. The family itself is annoying in that they they are so, like, 
ritual oriented like they have like every thanksgiving we always do this on thanksgiving we have this tradition of blah 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 so yeah Ugh. i'm taking a point off beating the drum yes yeah. i'm taking a point off beating the drum <laughs> because it's so friggin the family is constantly going on about how they're the pearsons and blah 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 and they're so you know i don't know it's pretty like annoying. a like a big fake family on tv made up by writers would do yes exactly so i only got three points <laughs> <laughs> I've watched every episode of it, some of them twice. You've just you have just vindicated me. Mom and I enjoy watching it together and mom likes it. Everything and you've said about it proves that what I assume about it just by watching it stupid trite commercials. It's, I is agree true. with you, but we still enjoy watching it. I can't and you explain. don't have to you don't have to And so apologize. I the good things about it I will say is the acting is good. Say all, who's in it, Milo Ventimiglia. Yeah, actually he's one of the ones that I I'm I'm yeah, not a big never fan liked of his acting. Him. Yeah. I don't mind. I didn't mind him in the Gilmore Girls. Maybe it's the character he's playing. I don't like. I think his character's kind of a dickhead. And I think that his acting, maybe he's the character. I don't know. But he's very wooden. I don't like. But all the rest of the people I like, all right. The two that I don't like are the two main characters. Mandy Moore, who plays Rebecca, the mother, and... Milo Ventimiglia, who plays Jack, the father, they're both kind of annoying. Mm. Mom finds them annoying, too. Oh, good. Good. But so, yes, I got three points. I can't say whether I'd recommend it or not. Obviously, you can tell from the commercials. You either would like that type of show or you don't. There are people who like it. I'm sure if our sister Nikki was here, she'd get all offended and defensive because I don't like it. But I'm just going to say that I will never watch it. Yes, I know you won't. Because watching the commercials, every single thing. Can I I finish? This is my turn to talk now. Oh, Jesus. I'm just, no, it's just going to last like two sentences every Mm -hmm. single thing somebody says is not only a cliche but a really (laughs) obvious annoying trite thing that normal people wouldn't say but that some half-assed writer would think was profound and everything and also in real life everyone's fucking fat you don't just have one fat person and say oh we're the show look how brave we are we have a fat person so that's That's in a nutshell how I feel about it. I think that anybody who would watch it probably is watching it because, as you said, you can tell from the commercials exactly what you're going to get when you watch the show. Right. And for some reason, I don't mind it, and I I enjoy watching it, especially with Mom. But, like, the show Parenthood, I couldn't fucking stand and never watch it. And it's a very, very similar show. And I will say, like, about Brothers and Sisters, I may not, if I watch that now... I may not like it because yes. because my assessment of things has changed as I've become an adult and embittered. Li- no, more but just embittered. become more able to realize that yes, over three decades, you see that a character show was only who's on do- ten years ago. Well, it feels like three decades. You you see a character who looks like that, they're gonna say that this is gonna happen, then that's gonna happen, and and I just am tired of all the trite, obvious shit. Yes. So. But you do. You did say you wanted to watch New Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> I never did. I never did. That's, That's another, another one. Show that for you watching the commercial, it's like I'm not going to. Everything watch he says show. is some like big pronouncement. Uh, oh, but he seems so break the rules. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, anyway, I'm going to try to watch some or listen to some true crime 
or something. So Well, you can do what I did when I lived at mom and dad's is get yourself some noise canceling headphones and watch it in your bedroom on your I iPad. Know, but you can she- you can I know you want to spend time with mom, but the perfect window of opportunity is between dinner and when Working. dad. I usually to bed. work until yeah. nine. Yeah, I usually I work until nine. I understand. I have a daughter. I'm a mom. Oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like she isn't just on her tablet all the time, and you're doing stuff with her. No, but I have to watch her in the morning, and then I have to go to work. Right. Until I get it. nine. I understand. So. That's anyway, what happens. I can't sleep Maybe someday they'll let kids go back to school again. <laughs> God damn it. This fucking homeschooling sucks. I well, know. now I'm not homeschooling. It's just she's just home. It's just summer, yeah. But anyway, because... <laughs> so that's our episode for today. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening, and you can find us. Oh, hey, hey. And I know times are tough. These uncertain times, these challenging times, these unpredictable times. But if you feel so inclined, go to... Crime and Stuff on Patreon or go to Crime and Stuff online, our website, and drop us a couple bucks. Yes, thank you, everybody. We, and, I, and I know that we're friggin' amateur hour here, but a lot of it, aside from the fact that we both work and, and don't have a lot of time, we're doing it all on a shoestring. We have gotten some donations, generous ones, in the past. And, you know, we, we have nice... I have a nice microphone, but the software we're using now, you can't even use your microphone with. No, I and, um, You know, we have to do use-free things and stuff, and I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that it's a struggle for us, and any little tiny bit of cash that'll help us pay for Blueberry, our hosting. We have to pay for the websites. We're using CleanFeed since we have to record remotely because of the COVID. I'm going to go up to CleanFeed Pro, I think, so that we can try to make the sound a little better although it's not bad so i'm just saying if you can drop us a couple bucks a month I, not Momo, well i just want to say you work three jobs so i do know, whatever i know and the even with covid and Anyways. i'm trying to write a book <laughs> finish <Yeah>. my book <laughs> so yeah. i can go up to the next level as an author and not work three jobs and spend more time Aww. podcasting i know I, I, hey sometimes dreams come true right yes and thanks okay. for listening. And, Thank you, um, everybody. And you can find us at Crime and Stuff Online and on yes. Twitter and Facebook and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Okay, and thanks Thank for listening. Thank you, everybody. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye.